0: It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this Mitchell Institute conversation, part of a podcast series created at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice here at Queen's University Belfast. I'm Richard English, Director of the Institute, and for today's conversation I'm really delighted to be joined by Dr. John Topping, Senior Lecturer in Criminology here at Queen's University Belfast and a Fellow of the Mitchell Institute. Dr. Topping's research focuses on many areas including criminology, police reform, Policing in society and restorative justice. John, I thought I'd start with a question asking you to outline something of your academic research today, your academic focal points and the things you've been looking at in developing your expertise so that listeners to the podcast can get a sense of the range of your scholarly expertise and work.
1: Thanks, Richard, and thanks to the Mitchell Institute for having me today. Um, Yeah, as as, as you've outlined, uh, I'm I'm a criminologist by trade, and I've probably spent the best part of over 16 years now working in the area of policing, and that's included... A whole range of research. Some of it critical academic work. Some of it research, independent research. Some of it consultancy. Some of it advisory. Um, with all the policing institutions in Northern Ireland, um, you know PSNI, policing board, police federation, um, uh, and the, the the policing community safety partnerships and the policing board. So I've certainly been around the block and and, and have a I suppose a a a, a unit a fairly unique long view of some of the reforms that we've seen here in in quite a a grounded, practical way. And the other thing, I suppose, I'm I'm fortunate, as I always, always think myself in terms of my research, that I am slightly broader than the immediate policing institutions have had experience um, on, on on a range of, of external bodies some from the voluntary community sector those include uh, niacro the northern Ireland association for the care and resettlement of offenders uh, i also have acted as an independent member of the belfast and policing community safety partnerships um and i currently sit on the uh, on the executive committee on of the committee on the administration of justice and i'm also chairperson of community restorative justice ireland uh, the largest community based restorative uh, group on the island of ireland so um, hopefully some of that today i can bring to you in terms of a range of perspectives
0: a range of perspectives and a very large range of areas of expertise john and also of different kinds of engagement of academic scholarly engagement of societally facing work as well uh, over recent times particularly after the tragic murder of george floyd questions of policing and police reform have become very pressing globally Uh, Can you say something about your reading of that period of attention to how policing in divided situations is practiced, to some of the challenges, some of the problems, perhaps to some of the things that have been achieved and progress made, whether in relation to the United States or in other settings, because it's been one of the headline-grabbing areas of societal challenge that many countries have faced.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the, the George Floyd era and post-George Floyd era, I mean, unfortunately, that was typified long, long long-standing problems in the United States, disproportional use of force, um, over-representation of the black community in the, the justice system Uh, and I think that the Interesting is the wrong word, but this was a, a, a an incident which was typical of, unfortunately, many over the decades, you know, going back to the, you know, the L.A. race riots, you know, Rodney King, um, too, too many to 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 enumerate. But um, this was uh, right in the public eye in this new era of Sue's Valence, as it's called, um, you know, that this incident proliferated and it really brought to a head, I think, uh, and still to this day has brought, uh, you know, real conversations about what the police are for what are the problems and how we can actually fundamentally change the police. Because I think, uh, you know, for a long time, any in response to particular incidents, whether in the US or the UK or, or Ireland, you know, there may be incidents involving, um, you know, disproportionate use of force. There's talk of reform, training programs are put in place, or some commissions, or so there's some, some small changes. But I think that the big issue which the, the, the George Floyd incident brought to bear, these weren't made any fundamental inroads any real change to the status quo. So of course uh, in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, incident there were uh, this so-called defund movement and I think they perhaps uh, colleagues in America were able to talk much much more openly about it uh, and knowledgeably. but I think initially people thought this was some movement towards you know simply not having the police or taking money away from the police and uh, uh, and simply you know d- doing away with them entirely but I think It it actually alludes to to a much more intelligent, much broader idea of policing, really, as I'll talk about in a little while, located actually in the police reforms in Northern Ireland, this idea of the governance of security. Um, You know, why on earth do the police and are the police the centre of all the go-to for all social problems in society, whether it's mental health, um, whether it's, you know, anti-social behaviour as we have in a UK context. Um, You know, I think we've become trained from a very young age to understand that when there are things going wrong, we call the police. Well, actually, the defund movement was about saying, well, what about we take, and particularly in the US, where we've seen, I suppose, a significant investment and militarization of the, of the police and the particularly in the post Bill Bratton era uh, of, the, of the 90s um you know why on earth are we investing so much in the police what and uh, what other upstream forms of intervention could we be doing and I've already mentioned mental health um you know early intervention schemes and and you know I I think it's the George Floyd debate has, has crystallized a lot of those issues and started to bring about more intelligent more serious conversations uh, around um how we can change the police, and I think, as I've already said, um, this idea of you know tweaking at the edges—it's it, not going to work. So this more fundamental approach, and I would say that's probably a similar picture in most Western policing societies, whether uh, in the states, whether across Europe, whether in the UK or Ireland. You know, there are unquestionably um, problems with the police—who they are, who they represent, and what they do. To particular groups of people in society and those are long-standing wicked issues which um, uh, have persisted I think for as long as the police uh, have been in existence and and we've understood them. So um, really uh, I think we are in a very interesting period for policing Uh, and I suppose as we'll go on to talk about in a little bit of time uh, perhaps in Northern Ireland we've been a little bit uh, ahead of the game in terms of the reforms we've experienced here and and not uh, two weeks ago I was on a panel with some US experts uh, talking about some of the lessons from Northern Ireland which I think have um, uh, that their stock has increased again having uh, sort of fallen out of criminological favour for for a number of years now.
0: Thanks John you mentioned Northern Ireland and we're over two decades now into the existence of the police service of Northern Ireland, uh, a police service uh, whose very existence reflected the sense that there was a deep need for significant police reform interwoven with, as you suggest, many societal issues about division, about legitimacy, about representativeness and so on. Could you offer your scholarly reflections on that two decades of the PSNI in terms of what has been achieved with police reform in terms of some of the enduring challenges which haven't been dealt with or haven't been received well or haven't been dealt with in decisive ways and some of the things that may lie ahead in terms of priorities for policing in Northern Ireland?
1: Ah, a big question, Richard. What what has and hasn't been achieved in a 20-year period? I mean, I think if you go back, um, for me, one of the big... Success stories, and I'll, I'll come back, go back and forth between different points. I mean, if you go back to even the late nineteen sixties, um, before the, the troubles proper, um, the Labour Party actually came over um, from London, and, and when you read some of the historical accounts, they are actually stunned at the lack of independence of the UUP at the time, the largest party uh, of politics from the police, um, and you know, transport that fifty years later. I think one of the big successes of the of the whole reform process has been, in the words of of David Bailey, one of the oversight commissioners here. Um, Essentially it was about wrestling 30 years of state monopoly on policing and giving it back to the people. I think that has been a big success. Um, We've seen certainly a decoupling of the politicking of, of uh, the police, we've seen. Um, I think, in particular, the creation of a whole range of monitoring and accountability structures, notably the police ombudsman, the policing board, which are, um, you know, for for whatever faults people may find in them, you know, they are revered around the world, and, and police organisations from across the world and countries come over to to understand how that works. So, I think that has been one big success. And I'll come back to politics and policing a, again later on, but we've also a a nice way to imagine the police reform process here because I think very often you know we talk about it and then forget that it was actually 20 years ago and and some people might not be familiar we had this big block of 175 recommendations for change and rather than see them as one big block I think an interesting way to look at them is to see them into two distinct streams so the first stream really relates to what you might otherwise call the systems of policing so some of the physical manifestations of change such as the name badges, um, human rights training, and of course, the issue of recruitment, which will probably come up again. Um, So I think by and large, perhaps excluding recruitment and composition, that has been uh, pretty much a success story to an extent in terms of the physical change and manifestations. Uh, And, and, um, you know, that that's been a big, a big feature. And I think, you know, we now have with younger people coming through, you know, so-called generation PSNI, with PSNI being 20 years old, you've now got the first generation of young adults who had perhaps no experience of the, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Um, but again, if, you know, maybe maybe going back into some of those issues, I, I think whether we are in the United States, whether we are in America, or sorry, whether we're in Europe, or whether we're, we're here in Northern Ireland, you know, Um, representation and recruitment still is one of the big challenges here. While we have an accountable, you know, overseen policing system, quite who the police are and what they represent and who wants to even be in the police I don't think is an issue which has ever gone away. Um, we are, according to the previous Chief Constable George Hamilton, in a period of declining representation in terms of Catholic recruits. I think it was Lucid Poll last year, even for the Belfast Telegraph, found only ever quite a small percentage of, of people, as defined from the Catholic community, would actually want to join PSNI. And in fact, we know recruitment is going backwards um, in terms of the percentage of people. So, so that's a big question about why people from um, Catholic nationalist community are perhaps not joining or not seeing it as a viable career. But I, I think you know, one of the things I would say as we go forward, you know beyond 2022, it's important not to get stuck purely in you know, traditional you know, orange and green issues. We're, we're, we're just about to have a run of, of the our first census in uh, since, since the last one, since 2011, I think. So I think that's probably going to magnify a much deeper range of, of inequities in terms of representation. And I think it's only now, 20 years later, that we're actually having conversations around, um, you know, uh, BAME communities, you know, LGBT plus communities. Where do they sit within these conversations around policing? So I think this is a new era um, you know, a new era that we're actually moving uh, moving into. Um, the other, the other, I suppose, success story uh, you could say um, has been in and around the human rights agenda. Now, um, certainly, probably outside the scope of the podcast, my expertise today around uh, legacy and, and the past and dealing with that. But I think you know, PSNI is by and large seen as a human rights compliant police organisation. That said, um, I always think it's useful to keep a critical eye and certainly over the last sort of two to three years, um, certainly, myself and, and colleagues at CAJ and, and beyond, you know, there perhaps has been a little bit of concern. There might be a slide in the human rights agenda. You know, we have seen, for example, the arrest of the journalists, you know, Barry um, McCaffrey and Trevor Burney, um, in relation to their investigations. We have seen PSNI lose European Court cases over data retention. Um, we have also seen, uh, you know, or we currently see as well, um, relatively quite high. Stop and search rates. We see difficulties around the recording of use of force. So I think there's some concern that there might be some slippage or at least stalling in the human uh, and the human rights agenda. Uh, so so that's something which I think we always need to, to to keep watching watching brief on. But as I said, you know, sort of twenty years later, what are we looking like in two thousand twenty two? Perhaps we're not where we would like to be. As I said way, you know, back at the start, um, you know, Patton was always about wrestling, you know, state monopoly in politics and taking that out of policing. I think we've actually seen quite a concerted period where politics has been reinserted in into policing over the last number of years. I think particularly magnified in sort of the, the, the COVID and the public health era. Um, we've had, um, you know, the, the policing of the so-called Bobby Story, uh, you know, affair where there's a policing of the funeral and calls of, of two-tier policing um we've had calls by the former first minister Arlene Foster for the chief constable to resign and I really had to think have we ever had a first minister uh, you know call for the chief constable to resign and that happened again later on um later on in the year um and Gedwin Puts again called for the Chief Constable to resign. And then, of course, in the midst of all this, we have Brexit and policing, and then we had the, the, the so-called Easter riots last year in 2021, where there were five nights of rioting, 80 police officers injured. And I just think, you know, in some, in some regards, you know, PS and I have been left to mop up the unfinished business of politics here, and I think we most clearly saw that with uh, for for those listeners, you can have a look online at the the so-called South Armagh policing review, uh, and that essentially was. A report which used local community groups and organisations to look at the tone and the style of policing in South Armagh, the militaristic style of policing which was still there, uh, and how that could be reviewed, and that caused an almighty row at the Northern Ireland Policing Board, who was involved. And I think when you look at it dispassionately, it turned a report about doing community policing in South Armagh into a debate, which looked at particular strands and the memorialization of RUC officers at individual stations. So I. Think think you know whatever your view on that review um it is and does typify uh, the ability of politics to seep and i suppose uh, create a toxic atmosphere around policing and and draw um police away from um you know the core business of doing policing uh, and i think you know that's been a real challenge for the current chief constable simon byrne over the past three years of his
0: tenure Thanks John you mentioned their stop and search and I know you've done pioneering work on that could you say something about your research into stop and search and its implications yeah stop and
1: search um, a hitherto un, un, unresearched topic really uh, um, at least in ordinary powers and if I take you back a little, uh, in a, a few years. Um, I was I was approached um, to to have a look at some stop and search figures uh, by some colleagues in, in uh, the press and the detail TV, and I had a look at these, and it wasn't a particular focus of mine. But actually, when we started to dig into it, started to realise that stop and search is a very significant issue. And, and I think what I'm saying here is that stop and search. Um, as a normal form of policing, has tended to fall between the cracks of the big issues. So whether it's terrorism, whether it's, you know, peace walls, whether it's terrorist attacks. um, You know, I think stop and search for many years was redrawn as this normal form of policing. And it wasn't really questioned, but it's only over the last few years that, you know, we've started to dig in. And what we've really seen is that, you know, even in 2022, PSNI is actually one of the worst performers of all UK police services when it comes to ordinary stop and search powers Uh, in terms of the volume uh, in which they do and use powers, mostly under uh, Misuse of Drugs Act, so uh, Misuse of Drugs Act 1971, but also their outcomes you know down to uh, levels of sort of four or five percent of arrest rates which actually when you you strip it away um are below the levels of the much derided section 60 stop and search powers in England and Wales which are suspicionless. so um there there are great difficulties and I think you know we we can have endless debates and I have in the past in various forums with PSNI on the how much and what's effective and what isn't effective but I think The big thing to to, to take away is that, you know, why wouldn't we have some of the problems in Northern Ireland, regardless of which community you are in, why wouldn't we have problems and relationships with the police stemming from stop and search? Because we've seen those lessons for 40 years and beyond in England and Wales going right back to Brixton riots and so on. Uh, and I, I think there has been some element of uh, you know, keeping, keeping stop and search at arm's length. But over the last number of years, we've managed to bring that up to speed. And, and we've started to realise through a series of surveys, the, the, the Young Life and Time survey here run at Queen's, very damaging impacts this has on police community relations, so I think for myself um, actually a big a big missing piece of the jigsaw has been stop and search you know why hasn 't community policing been able to stick in a lot of areas? you know Why are there continued problems well it 's not the only answer, but certainly stop and search is a significant one, and when you're you know doing stop and search at such a high level. With such low outcomes, you know, why wouldn't it create discord within communities? And I think the other thing we have to remember, and we're we're talking not talking about terrorist powers here, um, or stop and search is not by its legal definition. Evenly spread. It is targeted at particular groups of people, mostly in Northern Ireland, young males from socioeconomically deprived backgrounds. When that happens repeatedly, you then perhaps begin to understand a little bit, as some of our research has shown in the past, as to why perhaps uh, this seeps across into public order events, young people maybe get drawn in, and why perhaps they feel some outlet at, at, at getting getting their own back, as has been told in the past in research uh, at the police. So it, it's a complex issue, but I think stop and search is. is is nothing new. We've got all the lessons from England and Wales, and over the last number of years, have been been developing that, um, and you know, working through and, and with the, the policing board with PSNI to try and understand uh, and, and get some some deeper um, uh, you know understanding of of the actual impact this has, because I think we, we, we can't bury our heads in the sand for any longer, because uh, you only have to look across the water and and the absolutely toxic effects it has in particular areas, mostly around the big urban centres of England.
0: John it's been fascinating hearing about your research and I think particularly what struck me in the conversation has been listening to the ways in which your academic research feeds very strongly into society facing work. Concerns about how lived life is changed and improved and the things that make it more difficult and the organisational ways in which things can be improved. That very much aligns with what the Mitchell Institute is trying to do at Queen's. It's trying to be uh, an institute which interweaves academic work with societally facing work I hope that it'll send people who are listening to the podcast back to look at the things that you've written but for your insights and articulation of your ideas today thanks very much to my guest Dr John Topping. Thank you Richard.